Chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3 is where we'll be this morning where we'll start off. Good grief with the coughs up here. All right. Get it out of the way. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at the church. Glad that you are here with us this morning. I uh, spent the week in D.C. and got back on Friday. And it was a pretty interesting trip. I took 14 students up there in my group, but then there were 900 of us total in D.C. And we kind of took over the city for about a week. And uh, toward the end of the week, we were scheduled to go to the National Press Club. And it's a kind of historic place in D.C. where lots of historic events have happened. And, and one of the things that, that kind of has happened there historically is people have announced their presidential campaigns. And so when I saw the schedule and saw what was going on, I kind of spent some time thinking that maybe I would Friday announce my campaign for president at the National Press Club. So I was thinking about it, and then the week kind of went on. And as the week went on, the more and more I thought, maybe I don't want to do this. So... <laughs> We were supposed to go to the White House on Monday, and then, so we're on our way to the White House, and we, we get told that there is no trip to the White House today because the White House has been shut down. There's been a three-mile radius blocked off being searched by the Secret Service because apparently some people left a couple of bags unattended near the White House, and they take it pretty seriously up there, okay? Uh, they they kind of shut the whole thing down. In fact, I mean, the whole city of D.C. is a little uptight, if you ask me. Um, we went to the Capitol Building, is one of the places we went and toured, and uh, four students actually got detained at the Capitol Building, got Jack Boward in a little room with no windows and no video. Uh, it was awesome. <laughs> Thank God they weren't in my group, okay? They were... Uh, <laughs> This is really serious. Everything's business up there. They were taking pictures in the security line and of the security, which is a big no-no in the Capitol building. And so they got yanked into a room, data erased off their phone, and told they're going to federal prison if they do another thing wrong. And so it was, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> but they take it very seriously. So we're, we're, we can't go to the White House. In fact, we don't get to go to the White House all week. We managed to make it on our own just a couple hours before our plan on, on, on Friday afternoon, but I'm thinking, man, this is intense, right? I mean, I'm sure this happens a lot up here in D.C., like this kind of security that, that must surround the White House and these important buildings and these important people. Um, and then if you've been paying attention to the news as the week went on, right, it's been a pretty historic week uh, globally, geopolitically. A couple of big things have happened. So we were getting reports, um, some of the old leaders kind of keeping up on our phones, right, of what's happening in the world. And then you're kind of at one of the centers of the world, right, in D.C. And we're getting reports that Israel and Palestine are talking about a ceasefire. And then, as Colbert says, they agreed on the fire part, but not the cease part. Um, and, and kind of the, the, the relationship there went haywire over the week. Um, troops moved into Gaza, um, and the violence kind of escalated. And, and there's, a, there's a big, bad situation brewing. Uh, over there right now. And then um, just when you thought it couldn't get worse for the Malaysian airline, um, they're flying over Ukraine and, and a plane is shot down. Over 200 people uh, dead. And, and the tensions between Russia and Ukraine are, are, are again escalating into, again, a very bad situation um, geopolitically. And I'm just thinking, you know what? I'll let Barack handle this one, all right? I'll, I'll withhold my presidential run until all of this kind of settles down. Um, it's, it was kind of a chaotic week, and, and it kind of reminded me, particularly being in D.C., of, of the chaos that kind of surrounds our world sometimes. Sometimes we're insulated uh, in Sugarland and in our comfort, and we forget that there's a large part of the world around us in darkness and um, experiencing extreme suffering. Um, and there are situations that constantly, I think, beg the question, where is God? I mean, where is God? Particularly this Christian God that we claim is good and holy and beautiful and loving. Where is he? 
I mean, is he over there in, in Israel and in, in Palestine right now? Where was he on that airplane? Where is he with these, these child refugees we've been hearing about coming into America, escaping horrific gun and gang violence? Where is he? And then, what hope does the world have? I mean, what hope is there? So, particularly with this Middle East problem that we have, right, with, with the violence between Israel and Palestine, it kind of makes you think, maybe there just is no hope. Right? I mean, maybe certain people are just going to fight. Maybe they're just, there's, there's no breaking down this barrier, this division, this wall. Um, and then you wonder, you know, what, what are we supposed to do as the church? Um, as a Christian, I'm less interested in questions of, of the nation, right? Um, I'm not a politician. I'm not sure what the U.S. should do to address these issues. Um, but I do think the church community is called to do something to address these issues. And so I'm wondering, how, do, how, can, how possibly can Christians respond to these situations how can we be um, a, a light and, and salt in the world around us? Um, and then I'm thinking of situations not as large geopolitically, but, but in our own lives individually, where sometimes we experience um, division in families or at workplaces, um, where we experience the hate between other people, where we experience depression and doubting, and where we experience times in our own lives where we go, where is God? I mean, where is he right now? Where is he to be found? Where is he to be experienced? What hope is there when I'm stuck in this sin, when I'm stuck in this relationship, when I'm, I, I can't seem to make this right? What, what hope is there to be transformed? Or, or we have a, a mission in front of us. We have a, a job that we have been given to do, and we think, I'm just not equipped to handle that. And all this was kind of running through my mind during the week of D.C., and, and I was thinking about the sermon this Sunday. We're in a, a series called Ghost Protocol on the Holy Spirit, um, and today's topic is the identity of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? How do we talk about the Holy Spirit? What should we expect about the Holy Spirit? And I thought that, you know, some people might think this is what's wrong with religion. You have all of these horrible things happening in the world. Bombing, violence, hatred, abuse, and poverty. And then even at the comfortable, wealthy parts of the world, like here, we still have people just collapsing inside. We still have these difficult situations we face. And then you have religious people talking about these obscure, abstract ideas, defining the Holy Spirit, writing out things like one person, and, or three persons and one substance. <clears throat> and people go, what, what are you doing? There's a world around you. But the, the more I studied and the more I thought about it and the more I prepared for this weekend's sermon, the more I came to this conclusion, um, there's nothing more relevant to the problems of our world and the problems that we face individually than the Holy Spirit. Um, there, there's, there's nothing more relevant. It seems irrelevant, okay, when we, we try to talk distinctively Christian and we try to explore these ideas and, and the concept of who God is and how he works and what we should expect of him. Um, but, but, but if you grasp it and if you get it, you, you come to find out there's nothing more relevant because um, the answer to where God dwells is found in what his Holy Spirit is doing. And the answer to how is God going to transform this world is found in the activity of his Holy Spirit. And the answer in how is he going to equip the church to react to the problems and the darkness in the world is in his Holy Spirit. There's nothing more important than understanding and naming and recognizing and being led by the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll, I'll argue this morning and, and try to present to you that, that I believe God has, from the beginning of creation, desired intensely to dwell with his people. 
to be among his people, for them to experience his presence up close in front of their face, and that he's desired to transform them into a people for his name, into people who live for him, who say no to things of darkness and say yes to the things of light. And, and that the answer to these desires, the fulfillment of this desire in God, is found in the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Last week we started the series by talking about how, how important the Holy Spirit was. Um, and we sometimes forget him in Christian traditions and circles. And, and then we find Jesus in John 14 to 16 saying, Hey, it's better for you if I go. Because the Spirit will come and then you'll be ready to rock and roll. You need the Holy Spirit. There is no Christian life. There is no kingdom without the Holy Spirit. Um, and this morning we want to talk about who is the Holy Spirit. And I think in talking about who is the Holy Spirit, his identity, his person, his work, we'll find some of the answers to the most relevant questions that we might have in our world and in our, our individual lives. We're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? 1 Corinthians 3, um, and, and we're going to look at verse 16 here. We'll do a little bit of flipping, um, so stay with me. Who is the Holy Spirit? Verse 16, Paul's talking to a church in Corinth, and he says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, if you remember from January, I preached on this text, and uh, I, I told you to read the Bible like a Texan. Anybody remember this? Um, these yous here are plural yous. We don't have a word for it in English, but we do have a word for it in Texas, okay? <laughs> it's y'all, right? So, so it would read, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? It just is a lot more beautiful sounding. The Spirit has inspired the Texas dialect. Let's say that. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. Um, Paul's talking to the church in Corinth who are uh, kind of drowning in divisions and factions. They're a divided church. Um, much like, perhaps, divisions we find in our own world, in our own personal lives, in the world um, larger than us as well around us. There are these factions, these infightings, people trying to outrank each other um, based on who they follow, based on their giftings. And Paul's kind of trying to bring them back together with this one kind of central reality. He says, y'all are this local community, this group of people with all of your flaws and all of your weirdness and all of your drama. Y'all are where God dwells. He says, you are God's temple. The temple is the place on earth where the creator, eternal God has chosen to dwell, has chosen to locate himself so that people might experience him. Nothing higher could ever be said about a local church than you are where God's playing. You're where people can go and experience God and hear from God and be saturated in his presence. He says, you're God's temple. Now, if you look throughout the scriptures, what you'll find is that this idea of a temple is actually a very important theme. Um, from creation to new creation, from the first page of our Bible to the last page of the Bible. Um, creation is written, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, in such a way um, to, to make us think that creation is actually designed as a whole, all of the earth, to be one big temple. Uh, to be one big place where God dwells. And this is how it's set up originally to run. If you remember, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God's presence saturates the garden. He walks with them by day. I mean, he's right there in front of their face. But because of sin, they get kicked out of the garden, right? They move east of Eden, and they now live in a world of wilderness, a world without God's presence. But again, God has this desire to dwell with his people to be their God and for them to be his people and for him to locate himself in a way that he would be experienced 
And so throughout the story, you find God being creative, coming up with different ways to be experienced in the world, to locate himself, to dwell among his people. Um, So do you remember the story when the children of God, the Israelites, are being led out of Egypt? Um, They say, we need you to guide us. We need your presence. We can't do this on our own. And God says, okay, I'll provide for you. And he, he sends pillars, right? Remember this, the cloud by day? And the fire by night, God's spirit comes to lead them. Well, that turns into the tabernacle, what we call the tabernacle, which is this kind of portable um, temple. It's this tent that you kind of hitched up. And they're traveling through the wilderness, and they get to a place where they're going to stop for a while. And they set up the tabernacle, and God's glory would fill the tabernacle. He would dwell there, and they could experience him in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle eventually becomes the temple. They move into Israel. They go to Jerusalem. They build this temple, and God's glory comes and fills the temple. And this was one of the most distinctive things about God's people, about the Israelites. Sure, they had Sabbath. Sure, they had these food laws. Sure, they had these ethical uh, commitments. But they were the people whom God had chosen to dwell with. And they believed Jerusalem was the center of the world. Why? Because this is where God lived. This is where he had chosen to locate himself in such a way that he could be experienced. Now, they knew at, at all times, right, that philosophically, on a deeper kind of existential level, God can't live in a house, right? But he had chosen to saturate, to flood this place with himself so that his people might know him and experience him and be transformed by him. The Israelites, though, sin as a nation, as a, a people group, just like Adam and Eve did. And just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and moved east of Eden, so God's glory departs from the temple. God says, I'm out of here. He leaves the temple. And there's this promise that one day the spirit will come back. The temple will be rebuilt, will be re-inhabited by God's spirit um, as a kind of a, a down payment, a foretaste, because um, the scriptures say new creation at the very end of history, the whole earth will be flooded with the spirit again. He's, there won't be in a temple, Revelation says, because God's there and he's their God and they're his people. And Paul says what's happened is this temple, as a foretaste, has been rebuilt. We're not at the end yet, where God is again flooding all of creation like water over the seas. But we are again in a time in history where there's a place where you can go find God. Where you can experience Him and be flooded with His presence. And he says it's this place called the Corinth Church. When they pray together, and when they worship together, and when they serve each other, and when they love each other, and when they forgive each other, when they grow in Christ together, when they go on mission together, that's where God is on play. That's where God is at work in his creation. And how is the Corinthian community, the Christian community, God's temple? Paul says it like this. He says, you are God's temple. You all are God's temple. Why? Because God's spirit dwells in you. God's Spirit, the Spirit of God, sometimes called the Spirit of Christ, most often called the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost in the King James uh, version of the Bible. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is why we can say you are God's temple because there's the Spirit of God there, which begs the question, who is the Spirit of God? What is the Spirit of God? When we, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, what are we talking about? As Christians, um, I don't think we all need to be expert theologians But I do think we all need to at least download enough information to comprehend what we're saying, to be able to identify and and define uh, who we worship and and the the God that we follow. And so as Christians, we believe this about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is how Christians define God. Um, One way to think about it would be this. 
for Christians, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the grammar of God. This is how we've learned to speak about God. In the same way that, that the English language has grammar, grammatical rules and constructs, if I got up here and just started saying random things and verbs here and there and objects and subjects here and there and here and there, nothing would make sense. But we have grammar. It holds everything together. Um, and we learn grammar. We go through grammar school. After a while, we don't have to think about grammar as much. Right? We kind of set the groundwork, and then it keeps everything together. That's how the Trinity functions for Christians. We've learned that this is who God is. And we've learned to speak and worship God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So the Spirit would be one person out of this three-person Godhead. God is, for Christians, one substance or one essence and three persons. And the Holy Spirit would be this third person of the Trinity. All three persons are fully God, yet all three persons are distinct from each other. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father. One God in three persons. One way you could perhaps think of it would be to imagine triplets. Okay, I taught a, a, a pair, not a pair, three triplets uh, a couple years ago. <clears throat> it's been a long week here. I taught a, some triplets a couple years ago, and, and, and the thing about triplets, they're identical triplets, they look alike, right? I mean, when you first get to know them, it's hard to tell them apart. They've got the same DNA, they're from the same family, they look similar, they act similar. Um, but the more you get to know triplets, the more you get to know distinguishing features, right? I mean, they have some things that distinguish them from each other, whether it's physical things that you don't notice at first, but you kind of start to figure out, or little characteristics that they have uh, as individual persons, Imagine the Trinity as a group of triplets, except that the more you stare at them, the less you realize there's any difference between them. Whereas human triplets, you you start to notice, hey, they're a little bit different. There's some different qualities here, some different characteristics here, some different nature and tendencies here. Um, With the Godhead, what you find is there's these three distinct persons, but they're all exactly the same thing. They're the same substance. They have the same exact characteristics and qualities. Everything that you can say about God the Father, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's eternal, you can say about the Son. And everything you can say about the Father and the Son, you can say about the Spirit. They all share in this kind of godness. For Christians, God, speaking trinitarianly, is more of like an adjective, a characteristic, a nature, an essence. Um, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. Um, and and they, they, there's this diversity and unity, and, and this is how God has, for Christians, existed from all of eternity. This is not just how we experience God, or the rules we've made up about God, but as Christians we believe this is actually who God is, ontologically, which is a fancy word for like at the very core of being itself. From all of eternity, there's been these three persons who all have the same divine nature, the same godness, the same essence. This is why Christians are monotheists. It's not three different kinds of gods in these three persons. It's the same God. The same nature, the same characteristics, the same truths about this one God expressed and existing in three persons from all of eternity, which is why Christians say God is love. Because before anything was even around, the Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Spirit, and the Spirit was loving the Father and the Son. And, and as my theologians call it, the great dance, the dance of God. There's this dance between the three persons of the Trinity. They're distinct. And we need to remember their distinctness, but they're also united. They're together. We can talk about the Trinity as being interdependent. 
Um, maybe one way we could say it is that the, they never work alone. The Father never does anything without the Son and the Spirit. And the Son never does anything without the Spirit and the Father. And the Spirit never does anything without the Father and the Son. So in creation, you have every act of God. You can see all three persons of the Trinity working. In creation, you have all three people, all three persons of the Godhead working. The Father speaks creation into existence. Christians recognize the Word of God as the Son. He who comes and enacts God's will. And then even in creation, you see the Spirit of God doing what? Hovering over the waters of what the Son has brought into existence by the command of the Father. Even in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is bringing life to chaos. Is bringing God's power and presence to that which God has formed. In salvation, okay, the Father sends the Son out of His love for His creation. The Son comes and enacts the Father's will dies, purchases our salvation, sets up the kingdom, and the Spirit is sent to his people to accomplish that salvation so that they might be transformed. Even salvation is a Trinitarian act, every act of God, these three people working together to accomplish one will. One God, three persons. I get it. It's not easy. It's a mystery. It's deep. But when when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God himself present among us. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Divinity dwelling among us, dwelling inside of us. The Spirit is a person, Christians would say, not a force. That's why we say, um, use personal pronouns for the Spirit, he. Or even some people will say she for the Holy Spirit, um, because it's just as correct as he, right? The Holy Spirit is not, is genderless. It's not a he or a she, um, but it's definitely not an it, Right? It's, it's, it's a person. One of the ways maybe we sometimes think about the Holy Spirit as like an impersonal force, like in Star Wars, like the, the force will be with you, um, and less of as a, like a personal agent who thinks and moves and acts and has desires and who can grieve, all of which the Bible talks about the Spirit in those terms. Um, he has plans. We, we sometimes think about it as a... a, a it, see I said it right there, sometimes think about him as a, an impersonal force. Um, perhaps one of the reasons is we, we have this definite article, right? The Holy Spirit. I've actually heard some speakers who drop the the and say Holy Spirit and use it as like a personal name and address. It's an interesting way to try to get around our um, problems, right, of understanding the Holy Spirit. Um, so we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I heard from Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit is leading me to do this. It, it kind of increases this personal agency in perhaps a way that, that affects us and our thoughts in, in a way that we hadn't thought of before. So you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit characteristically, okay, throughout history and throughout the scriptures, mediates the power and the presence of God. The Holy Spirit mediates the power and the presence of God. He brings God to creation. Up close and personal. God the Father you might describe as the transcendent one. The infinite God. God the Son is God incarnate. And human flesh revealed right in front of us. And God the Spirit is God imminent. Up close and personal with us. For us to experience. For us to behold. For us to be transformed by. Paul says y'all are the temple of God. Y'all are where God dwells. Because his spirit is dwelling inside of you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The same spirit that blessed Christ during his ministry. The same spirit that hovered over the waters is bringing life to this community. This is what the spirit of God does. He takes things that are dead and ugly and old and makes them new and alive and beautiful. 
He brings life out of chaos. He brings light out of darkness. He brings God's power and presence up close and personal to God's creation. The Holy Spirit dwells among you. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to 1 Corinthians 6. So the answer, I think, to, to the big question of where is God in our world um, is quite simply the church, the local community of believers that, that extends globally. This is where God is working. This is where he's at play. This is where he is to be experienced. Um, but, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is going to take it a step further, the same idea, um, and he says this, uh, talking about sexual immorality. The church in Corinth was crazy, okay? They were out of control. Um, and he, he says this to kind of as the keystone of his argument for them to be sexually pure, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Not only does Paul say, does the community have the Spirit dwelling in and among them? He says, individually, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And this reality, the truth that the Spirit exists inside of you, plays through your bloodstream and fires around in your neurons. This is the primary catalyst for transformation in the Christian life. Why are we different? Why are we able to do different things than we were before? Why do we act differently than we acted before? Because God himself is dwelling inside of us. Once again, the the answer to what hope is there for divisions to be broken down, for hate to be replaced with love, for joy to replace depression and sadness and darkness, the answer is the Holy Spirit. The answer is God himself coming to dwell and move and work from the inside out. Again, this has been a promise and a storyline from the beginning of the Bible until the end of the Bible. At the very beginning of creation, God breathes into man that's how man receives life this word for breath is the same word for spirit god breathes his spirit into man they live um jesus after he's resurrected breathes onto the disciples and john in kind of a weird scene you're like what is he breath checking here what's going on he just <sighs> breathes on this, the disciples and they receive the spirit jesus is giving them what, what we had lost from creation Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. With our sin, we, we lost the Spirit's presence and His dwelling inside of us. In fact, Genesis 6 has a line in there talking about the Spirit says, I can no longer dwell with man because of how violent and evil um, they are. And he, he goes away. He withdraws from mankind um, <clears throat> and, and dwelling with them personally. But what you find throughout the Old Testament is that the Spirit will come and, and, and intercede and, and fill up certain people at certain times to equip them for the task ahead of them, for the community. Um, but it's not something that's available to everybody at all times in this kind of overwhelming sense. So the Spirit will show up to a judge in the book of Judges. Samson, you remember these, these, these people? And, and the story will go, the Spirit of God showed up. And now all of a sudden the Spirit there, they're able to do things they weren't able to do before. They have different powers, different abilities. They're able to bless the community and lead the community. The Spirit shows up and fills up a prophet in the Old Testament. Now they're able to speak the words of God. Why? Because God himself is inside of them. So when they open their mouths, God is coming out. God is speaking through them. Again, though, it's, it's kind of a hit or miss thing. It's, it's kind of a limited thing. Limited doses at limited times of the Holy Spirit to get God's people. But there's always this hope laid out in the Old Testament that one day all of us are going to have the Spirit. Every single one of us will be filled to the top. Not a limited dose and not at a limited time, but this kind of overwhelming filling of the Spirit. For God himself is dwelling inside of us and working in 
and through us. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to Ezekiel um, chapter 36. Kind of the key passage about this promise of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel chapter 36. That would be page 724 on your black hardback Bibles. I have your back. <coughs> Ezekiel 36. We'll pick it up in verse 22. There's this promise that one day, not just the prophets, not just the judges will have the Spirit, but all of God's people. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, who through you, went through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the basic plot line here, right, is you were supposed to display my goodness to the world, and you have not. But one day I will fix this. One day I will vindicate who I am through you. One day I'm going to come and I'm going to fix this. I'm going to create a people for my name. Again, God has always desired to dwell with his creation and to create through his presence a people who live for his name, who bear light and witness to the world around them. Verse 34, I'll take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart, and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. In verse 27, we underline and highlight and circle. Also, I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And here's the main covenant promise. You will be my people and I will be your God. Why? Because my spirit is inside of you. And notice once again, the spirit's primary uh, kind of agency here, the, the primary thing it's doing is it's being the catalyst for us changing. We were unable to be a people for God's name. And God's solution was to say, well, then I'll put my very own spirit inside of you so that you can walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws so that you'll know and experience and live in the life that I've come to offer you. One day there's this promise that the spirit will be poured out. And as Christians, what we believe is that because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, this promise has been fulfilled. Mission accomplished. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, after the work of Jesus, the church receives the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, those who believe in Jesus are flooded with the Spirit, overflowing with the Spirit, able to experience God's power in His presence, able to know what it, it is to be in the presence of God, to experience His love and his reality, able to be transformed and able to, to walk in new ways of life and able to be equipped um, for the task ahead of them. The Holy Spirit mediates God's power and his presence, and it's been granted to you and I as Christians. Now, interestingly enough, this is something, so again, this, this comes true in the, the new covenant. It's fulfilled and should be fulfilled among you and I, um, but it's, it's also true of our Lord uh, Jesus. So if you, you flip in your scriptures to Luke chapter 3, I want to show you this. Um, you could ask the question this way. So, so when Jesus is here, okay, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God in bodily form, God incarnate, enters into our history to reveal the nature and character of God to us. To accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. 
he shows up and he's able to do things that most humans are not able to do. Right? He, he can perform miracles. He can turn water into wine. He makes him the life of the party. Okay? He can multiply bread. He can walk on water. He can um, foretell events, read people's thoughts. Okay? All these, these crazy things. And we normally read this as Christians and think he's able to do these things because he's God. And it's true. When you look at Jesus, you see God, the Son, in the flesh. But there's another way to read the Gospels. It's equally true. Which is to say, Jesus is able to do the things that he does during his ministry because he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. Even the Son of God doesn't move in God's will for his life without the blessing and leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's very, very interesting. Um, Jesus, in one sense, stands in a long line of prophets who are able to do remarkable things because God himself, through his Spirit, was working in and through them. If you look in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I've always thought this one little scene here, the, the baptism of Jesus, is the perfect picture for understanding the Trinity. You've got all the members of the Trinity here revealed. You have the Father speaking, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Which is not only a, a sentence of love, it's also a sentence of mission. This is from Psalm chapter 2. The Son is the one who will be the King, who will accomplish God's will. You have the Son being baptized, the Son in bodily form, here to do God's will. And then you have God's Spirit, His power and presence being put on Jesus, which will enable Him to accomplish the mission set out before Him. This beautiful picture where all three members of the Trinity are interacting, right? On display in front of us. And then Luke masterfully keeps this in the front of our minds as we read about Jesus. Just on the same page, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, after the baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So Jesus goes through this period of temptation. Why? Because the Spirit leads him there. The Spirit is guiding him, leading him, filling him up. As he continues after this temptation in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus tempted because the Spirit leads him to go be tempted and refined. Jesus um, goes out in ministry full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Even our Lord lives his life by and in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same power that was with Christ, the same Spirit that dwelt in him and filled him, the same Spirit that raised him from the grave, super say, is now poured out to each and every one of us. It's available to you and to I. And we're able to experience God's presence. And we're able to experience his power working in us and working through us. Last, last place to flip. Go to Acts chapter 2. Written by Luke, again. So Luke has been telling the story of how the, the, the Spirit has worked in and through Jesus. And, and then he gets to um, the part of the story where Jesus um, fulfills his promise to the disciples to give them the Spirit. And remember, he says, don't go try this on your own. It's not going to work well. Wait for the Spirit. He'll help you out. 
Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and, and tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Just like Jesus, they're filled with the Spirit and enabled to go do powerful things as, as witnesses to God and to his Son and the Gospel and the good news of Jesus. If you flip to Acts chapter 4, um, verse 31, um, the story that we, we kind of skip in Acts, the, the apostles full of the Spirit are going out and doing these amazing things. They're healing people. They're preaching powerfully. People are being saved, much like during Jesus' ministry. It's odd. When the Spirit of God dwells inside of people, it looks a lot like it did when the Spirit of God dwelt inside of Jesus. The same Spirit, Paul saying in Romans 8. It's the same exact Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that performed these miracles. It's now working in and through you. He says, if you are the sons of God, the sons of God have the Spirit of God. The Spirit confirms their sonship. We'll, we read it this morning in our liturgy, um, Romans 8. We'll, we'll unpack it uh, further next week, and I promise you it'll be a good time. But we're in Acts 4, verse 31. They've been healing people. They've been preaching. They've now been arrested, and so there's some opposition. This is kind of the first roadblock for the early Christian community. And you see the Spirit show up and move powerfully in them. They're praying for boldness. Um, in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, the believers here already have the Holy Spirit, right? They've already been filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is um, one of many places that would suggest to you and I that the, the Spirit fills us multiple times. Um, anytime you experience this sense of God's presence or this, this equipping to, to, to go out and be transformed to Christ-likeness or to, to, to work on Christ's behalf, you've got this filling of the Spirit that's the work of the Spirit. Christians have learned to name that as the Holy Spirit moving and working. <laughs> What does the Holy Spirit do? He mediates God's power and His presence. Who is He? He's, he's an eternal member of this, this triune God that's been revealed to us in history and through the Scriptures. The Spirit's job, what He does, is He brings us close to God. In two ways, two directions. He brings God close to us. He brings God's power and His presence close to us. And then He also brings us close to God. We'll, we'll read, the Spirit prays for us. The Spirit opens up our hearts to, to God, the same way he opens up God's heart to us. He brings us close to God. Um, a, a lot of times I think Christians experience the Spirit, we just don't have the ability to name it, to name his work and his activity, um, and, and are, are ill-equipped to seek it and respond to it. Um, we'll talk about this in, in future weeks, but one of the ways that, that, that God's um, spirit works in me and that his presence is real to me is in primarily there's two ways there's music and there's reading now I know the reading's not for everybody music I think is going to be pretty universal there are these times listening to a song maybe not necessarily even a Christian song where you can't explain it but something's like changed right it's like a window has been opened up to something divine and it's ineffable you can't put words to it but there's this peace that like surrounds your entire soul and there's this joy that fills you up and you're just alive in the moment and you know that god loves you and you know that he's died for you and you know that you are his forever christian said that's the spirit that's an encounter with the holy spirit that's a filling of the holy spirit the spirit's just brought god's heart close to you and you encountered it you participated in it and then, for me, again, I know this is not for most, but reading, whatever reason, whatever reason reading does this to me. Um, I, I completed my thesis uh, 
and last fall, it was done in December, and, and, and I was explaining to somebody, uh, I'm reading this guy, Cyril Alexander from the 4th century, and for whatever reason, I'm finding that reading him is a lot like worship. I mean, I would just be sitting there reading about these, these crazy, like, y'all think me talking about the Trinity as one substance, three persons, is like a little much, <laughs> right? Like, okay, we get it, we'll memorize it, that's fine, let's move on. Um, I mean, they're going, these church fathers are like really digging this out, right? I mean, beyond what you're probably going to be interested in about who's doing what and what's doing this and the language we've got to use for this and for this and that. And I find myself reading it and unable to explain, but there's this sense of like, I'm close to the reality of the world. There's a sense where in the core of my being, I know in a way that I can't even say who God is. And what he's done in his son and what he's done in my life and that I'm his for all of eternity. And as a Christian, I, I've learned to, to name that, to identify it, to seek it, to respond to it, to say that's the Holy Spirit. That's God sending me his power and his presence active among me. The Spirit brings God close to us, brings us close to God. The Spirit also transforms us. The Spirit's what enables us to live new lives, to be new creatures. He takes what's old and ugly and dirty and transforms it into something that's new and alive and beautiful. He allows us to say no to sin and no to our old lives and yes to a new life, yes to righteousness and holiness. The Spirit transforms us. He makes us a new creation. The Spirit also equips us for the task ahead of us, for the the mission that's been given to us to share the gospel, to, to witness to Christ's work in the world. We're unequipped, much like the disciples. Jesus says, don't try this on your own. Don't try to depend on yourself for this. This is maybe one of the big failings of of the church as we perhaps have experienced her, is we've depended much too heavily on our own self-sufficiency, on our own ability to market and advertise and plan strategically, and less on the, the guidance and the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It often breaks our plans apart and leads us in ways we we might not perhaps have desired to go. But the Spirit equips us. The Spirit is the one who gives us those gifts. As we we think of the Spirit, as we worship this morning, as we we look out in the world around us and we see the things happening in Ukraine and Russia and in Israel and Palestine, and and, and we, we see the problems around us, we see the problems within ourselves, and we ask these questions, where is God? Where is he to be found? Where is he spending his time? What hope is there for transformation? For the world around me, even for my own heart? And how can I possibly be equipped to respond to the problems around me? How can we as a church be equipped to respond to the problems of the world around us? The answer, at time and time again, goes, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. If you need to know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know God's love for you. You're only going to get that through the work of the Spirit. Sometimes we, we look other places for that. Sometimes we, we try to have this kind of like magical religious routine and it breaks on us. And all of a sudden doing these three things doesn't communicate God's love to us the way it used to. And we're like an addict looking for a fix. Yeah. And we either go the wrong place or we give up trying at all. <clears throat> He's going to know it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who does that. If, if you need this encounter with the, the, the Spirit, you, you pray for it, and you ask for it, you seek it, and you're sensitive to it, and you respond to it. If you need to be transformed, if you're stuck in that place, 
You see a world stuck in a place of sin and hatred and violence. You find your own heart stuck in a place of sin and disobedience. Your hope is not for, again, a strategy or three steps or, or some sort of self-behavior manipulation. Yeah. It's for the Spirit of God to come and move powerfully in you. Or if you, you know there's this person you need to be ministering to, there's this mission, this task ahead of you, there's the world around you which you've been called to minister to, and you go, how could I possibly be prepared? The answer again is the Spirit. He'll prepare you. Jesus says, you won't even have the words. Don't worry, just show up. He says, the Spirit will give you the words. He says, don't even write it down. Don't bring a notepad. Just show up and the Spirit will help you. This is his job. He's going to guide you into the future. He's going to equip you. As Christians, it's so important for us to be able to, to name and identify the Spirit and for us to give thanks to God for the Spirit. Now, the next few weeks, we will talk a little bit about maybe ways that we can um, proactively engage uh, the Holy Spirit and, and experience Him, right? So what does it look like to walk in Him? What, is it, what are some of the things we can do to be led by the Spirit? What does it look like to be sensitive to the Spirit? Um, so maybe more pragmatic things like that. But this morning, what I want us to do is, is simply to um, kind of bask in the goodness of God and, and simply recognize who He is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to recognize His promise of the Spirit and, and to ask for His his, his presence in the Spirit and say more of the Spirit, more of your love for me, more of your transformation in my life, and more of your equipping in my life for the world around me than I've had before, than I had yesterday, and that I had last year, and that I had five years ago. I know you promised this to me. I, 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 I know I've experienced it, and I want more of it. Or maybe we, we haven't experienced it, and so today we go, fill us with the Spirit. We want to follow Christ. We want to recognize Him as Lord, which we know is the Spirit's work in our hearts and in our minds. God has been revealed to us. We've learned the grammar of faith as Christians. And we worship and praise and follow and experience the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And whenever you find yourself through the situation in the world around you or through a situation in your own life asking, where is God? What hope is there for transformation? How can I be equipped for the task ahead of me? The scriptures are going to point you again and again to the lived and experienced reality of the Holy Spirit working in and among us in the church. Would you pray with me?